You know, it's odd how sometimes there are names and faces that we're very familiar with, but we really don't know anything about the person. That happens a lot in life, and one of the names that you may not know is Ann Turner Cook, unless you happen to see a news article about her this past week. It was announced on June the 3rd that she died at the age of 95. Now, my guess is you don't know her name. But what you do know is that in 1927, there was a charcoal sketch made of her, and it was entered into a competition for an ad campaign in that day. That ad campaign stuck around, and when I tell you what company she was uh, used to advertise for, you'll know who she is. It was the Gerber Baby Food Corporation, and so you've seen her picture before. There she is. She passed away, like I said, just a couple weeks ago, and that picture has become iconic. We have all seen that picture. It's familiar to us, and yet, my guess is, if you haven't already forgotten her name, you'll forget it by lunchtime, right? Just an everyday person who, in some small way, became part of our everyday life by an event that happened a long time ago. And we're in this series where we're thinking about everyday people that God used in an important way that affect our lives even now. And so we're going to continue that, and we're going to come back to a guy that we know his name very, very well, but we don't really know that much about him. So we'll come back to that guy in just a minute. But before we get there, I want us to think about something that has a powerful effect on our lives, the lives of other people, and our relationships with people as well. And that's our expectations of the people around us. Now, we form expectations of people all the time, just by the way they may interact with us, by the way we see them interact with other people, and we sort of think we know how they're gonna respond if we were to ask them to do something or ask them about something. We have general expectations of lots of people. Now, one of the things that we develop expectations about is, you know, what if I invited this person to come to church with me? I bet I know how they'll respond, right? I mean, we might look at some people and say, yeah, they would probably say yes, but then there are probably a lot of people in our lives, whether it's, you know, a sibling, maybe even a spouse, a friend, a coworker. if we invited them to come to church with us, we sort of, well, we're pretty sure they would say no. We just don't think they would respond well to that invitation. Maybe we even think, I don't know if they'd really want to be involved in church at all. I don't know if if church is the kind of place for them, I'm not sure they would even fit in, if you will, in church. And so because of our expectation that they'll say no, or our expectation that it might create some awkwardness, or our expectation that they just might not fit in, we, we don't ask, do we? We just don't ever invite them to come to church with us. And in that way, we can sort of become a gatekeeper to the church. Now, we don't necessarily intend that to be the case, but because of our expectations, we choose not to invite so they don't have an opportunity to respond to the invitation. Now, if we look back in history, what we find is that churches, but religious groups in general, have a tendency to draw lines, right? Who's in and who's out and who might fit in and who'll never fit in. We see that at work in lots of different places. 
And we see that Christians have been guilty of that, of drawing circles for people to come in and to stay out. And in fact, our mailman knows that we're involved in ministry and we were at work in the front yard a couple weeks ago and he stopped and talked to us and he wanted to know, can a certain group of people, do you think they can ever get into heaven? So we had this conversation in the front yard while he was supposed to be delivering mail about that group of people. No, he's a nice guy. We, we want to draw the circles. Who's in and who's out? What does Jesus say about that? I want us to think about that today as we look at one little story that we find in Luke chapter 5 of a man who seems to be sort of an everyday man who has an interaction with Jesus that changes his life but has an effect even on us today. The story begins in, as I said, Luke chapter 5, but we begin in verse 27. This is how it starts. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector, a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting in his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. Now, there's several things even in that first line of this story, first verse of the story, that are notable. First of all, this man that Jesus speaks to is a tax collector. Now, we've talked about this before. Tax collectors were not very popular in the first century. They usually are not. But especially during that time, and especially in Palestine, because you had Jewish people who worked as sort of an under-tax collector for a Roman official who would be the senior tax collector. So what you would do is you would apply for a license to collect taxes. And so what everyone would see you doing is working for the Roman oppressive government who is occupying the land, taking money from your own people to give to the Romans to continue what they're doing, and beyond that, you're sort of attaching a surcharge to collect even more for your own pocket. It was seen as almost traitorous. And yet, those licenses to collect taxes were not easy to come by, and you had to pay a bunch of money to get one. Well, why is that? Because you could become a relatively wealthy person by becoming a tax collector. And so this person that Jesus sees, this man named Levi, is... Compared to most people around him, pretty well off. But he's also not very well liked. His name is Levi, we see, and that's the second thing about him. His name is Levi, but we know him by a different name. The Gospel of Mark tells a story, and he's called Levi. And of course, here in Luke, he's called Levi. But in Matthew's Gospel, Levi goes by a different name. Matthew. It seems that the writer of the first gospel wanted us to know that this guy was also known by this name, Matthew. Same as the, the label on the gospel. We'll come back to that. So Levi, Matthew, and lots of people were known by more than one name, right? We know Isaac and, I mean, we know Jacob and Israel is the same person. We know Abram and Abraham is the same person. God changed their name, so it was not surprising. But this Levi, Matthew was a tax collector, the third thing we see is that he's sitting at his tax collecting booth, which was the normal way. It was always sort of on a main thoroughfare that people would pass by. They would have to pay a tariff of some kind. If something happened in their life, they knew they had to pay a tax. They would go to the tax collector and give that tax money to the tax collector. So this is common. And it says that Jesus saw him. 
Really, the, the language behind that word is Jesus singled him out. So there's probably a lot of people, again, main thoroughfare people coming and going. Jesus singles out Levi. Now, why? Had he seen something in Levi? Maybe so. Did Jesus, Jesus just think, what would, what would be the impact if a tax collector became one of my followers? How would that impact everyone else? For some reason, Jesus notices Levi, and he issues that simple invitation, follow me. Now, is it that the gospel writers abbreviate the conversation? I don't know. Did Jesus say more, or had he already said more on that day? They certainly can't include everything Jesus ever said or did. But what Luke tells us is Jesus said, follow me, very simply. How did he respond? Verse 28, and Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Like, wow, that was, was really quick. I mean, somehow Levi saw something in Jesus that he had never seen before. And so when Jesus issues this invitation, almost a command, Levi says, okay. And he got up from the tax collecting booth, and he walked away from it. Now again, Levi's not very well liked, but he is pretty well off. And when he walks away from the tax collecting booth, he is walking away from his money, at least his source of income. He's walking away from a pretty lucrative position, but he's ready to go. Because he sees in Jesus the opportunity to be involved in what God is doing. God is on the move, and Levi wants to be part of it. And so he's ready to follow Jesus. And when he followed, he really followed. We see that at work in the next verse, verse 29. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him. So even though he doesn't have this source of income anymore, he's still got some money, but he's not even going to hold that back. He's going to use it for this big banquet for Jesus because he can see that Jesus is doing something different. And he invites his friends. He wants his tax collector friends. Now, it was probably a relatively small group of people, but they're attached to one another because everybody's against them. And then some people who surround them, who probably also don't have the best of reputations, Levi invites them all to his house to celebrate with Jesus so that they can be introduced to who Jesus is. When Levi follows, he really follows, and he wants everyone to know what's going on, but... There were some people who were not very happy with this. Verse 30. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, as we read through the, the Gospels, the Pharisees don't get a whole lot of good press, do they? They end up being sort of the self-righteous, sometimes the hypocritical religious leaders of the day. And, and Jesus often doesn't have good things to say about them, partly because of the way they're acting. Now, 
The, the truth is, the Pharisees were people who not so much just wanted people to earn their way to God by their righteous acts, but recognized God has called us to be His people. Now, if we're God's people, what do we look like? How does that, how does that work itself out in daily life? How do we live our lives as God's people? And one of the things they would have said is, we stay away from people who aren't following God. We keep ourselves holy. We don't want bad influences. We don't, we don't want these people who have turned their backs on God to have an effect on the rest of the community. And so, as important as table fellowship was, you only ate with people you thought were approved by God, they said, there's no way you would sit down with tax collectors and sinners because they're in league with Rome against God's people. So they went to Jesus' disciples and said, why are you eating with those guys? Why in the world would you sit down with tax collectors and sinners and share a meal? Now, one of the things that's really interesting about that verse is the Pharisees didn't go to Jesus, did they? They went to Jesus' disciples now, why didn't they just challenge Jesus on this? I think there's a reason, and it comes in the story that precedes this call to Matthew. In that story, which is probably familiar to you, you got some guys who have a friend who's disabled. They want to get him to Jesus. They're having trouble doing that. They lower him through the roof in front of Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees, when they heard that, this is what went through their minds. Luke 5, 21, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, seems like the same group of guys, began thinking to themselves, and my guess is sort of murmuring to one another, who is this guy? Who's this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So in that story, we've got Jesus saying that he can forgive sinners. And what's their reaction? There's no way he has the power to forgive sinners. That's just up to God. This guy is blaspheming. And what did Jesus do? He healed the man. Nobody could do that. And the whole point was he was bringing back his physical health as a sign that he could also restore his spiritual health. Jesus really could forgive the man, and he did. And so the critics were silenced. So on this day, when Levi's holding the banquet, and they're objecting to who Jesus is eating with, they're not about to tell Jesus because it might be that he'll publicly embarrass them again. And so they just go to the disciples. How can you, and the implication is, how can you and Jesus sit down with these unclean people who are in league with Gentiles, the Romans who are controlling us. How can you possibly sit down with them and eat with them? The disciples don't get a, an opportunity to respond because Jesus responds for himself. Verse 31, Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. 
I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, the Pharisees had it all wrong. They thought Jesus should have been about keeping separate, keeping holy, keeping away from everything that was unrighteous, especially these people. But what Jesus says is, what I need to do is to be out among people who are hurting, who are the outcasts, who are the sinners, because they need healing spiritually. They need forgiveness. They need to be invited in to what God is doing because no one else is going to do it. It's like a doctor, right? He's not there to treat the well. He's there to treat the sick. And here I am. And I'm not just here to treat the righteous. I'm here to bring those who are unrighteous back to God. That's really the end of the story of Matthew. Now, he shows up in some lists of the apostles He's there. He is witnessing everything that happens with Jesus, but we just don't know that much about him. What we do know is that the very first gospel carries his name, Matthew. Now, our oldest accounts of the gospel manuscripts do not have a name attached to them, but in the second century, tradition is there that Matthew is the one who wrote this. So Matthew, from this day forward, sees everything that happens with Jesus. And somebody wrote it down. Maybe it was him. And so every time we turn to the first gospel, we say, let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. Let's turn, that's the Beatitudes. Let's turn to Matthew 28. That's the Great Commission. We say his name over and over. And we know very little about this everyday man who got up from his tax collecting booth, except that he followed Jesus. And he invited people to follow Jesus with him. And what this story reminds me of is the fact that Jesus had room for everyone. Jesus had room for people who were unrighteous and he had room for his disciples. And if the Pharisees would have just come in and sat down, he would have had room for them. And so we are reminded that and us drawing lines between who we think will accept Jesus and who won't, Us drawing lines between who's in and out is really not that helpful. What's helpful is inviting people to Jesus. What's helpful is saying Jesus wants you to know him. Jesus wants to help you deal with sin. Jesus wants to offer you an eternal relationship with God. And I think there are three truths that can help us down this path as we try to live out this truth that Jesus had room for everyone. The first is that we're all sick and in need of a doctor, right? When Jesus says, I've come to call the the unrighteous to God, you know who he's talking about? He's talking about me and he's talking about you. You see that the Pharisees missed the point. They thought they were righteous and Jesus should hang around them because of their righteousness. And what Jesus was really saying is, We're all unrighteousness, unrighteous. We just need to to see that. And so when he saw these people who recognized that they were outcasts, who recognized that in many ways they had turned away from God, and at this point they were ready to listen, Jesus was ready to talk to them. And when we recognize, hey, it's not that we're on the inside and everybody else is on the outside, the truth is we all have the same need. We've all messed it up. 
And none of us are living a sinless life. We've made mistakes. We've done things wrong. And what we need to do is turn to the only one who can deal with our sin problem, Jesus. Second truth, we need to share God's grace as freely as Jesus shared grace. There are people around us, as we talked about last week, who commit sins blatantly, and some of it makes us really uncomfortable. And we don't like it. But the truth of the gospel is those sins can be forgiven too. And none of us have the right to decide who deserves grace because ultimately nobody deserves it. It's called a gift for a reason. We can't earn it. We can't do enough to get it. We just have to receive it. And everyone can receive it. And we should be just as generous with God's grace as Jesus was. We should be ready to invite just like Levi was. Now, did Levi know that everybody who came to his banquet was going to say, you know what, I want to follow Jesus. I'm leaving my tax collector's booth too. My guess is he knew they weren't all going to do that. But some of them might. And so he invited all of them. And then the final truth is that grace prompts change. When Levi came in contact with Jesus and recognized that Jesus was offering him something that no one else could, what happened? He changed his life. He recognized that was not the life that God called him to. And so when he experienced grace, he recognized that he also needed to change. And so often we see Jesus interact with people who are struggling with some, some kind of sin, and Jesus is more than ready to forgive them, but he also calls them to change. So it's not that God just says, do whatever you want and I'll accept you. It's you've messed up, like we all have. I'm ready to forgive you. Here's how your life needs to change. Not so you can earn something, not so you'll be good enough, you see, the thing is, God created us. He made us. And because of that, He knows what is the very best for us. And so He's invited us to that life because He loves us. Jesus had room for everyone. It didn't matter who they were or what they'd done. The invitation was open. Again, he offered grace, and he called for change, but there was no one who was too far away for him to offer an invitation to. A tax collector, fisherman, a long list of guys. It's up to us to have a long list of people in our lives that we want to invite to. Let's pray together. God, we know that we're sinners and we know that we are in need of the grace of Jesus as much as anybody else and we're thankful for it. We're thankful that you have offered us that grace and offered that we can be part of what you're doing for now and for eternity. And so God, we ask for forgiveness in the name of Jesus and God, we also ask that you would empower us to share that message with the people around us so that they too can be involved in the life that you've called them to live. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.